Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Nick Augustine, and I'm your host on this episode of Law Talk Radio, produced by ProServe PR Marketing, a Chicago public relations and marketing firm with legal PR practice areas covering family law, litigation, and intellectual property. Please show your support for our programming by visiting and clicking the like button on our social media pages. First, we have the Law Talk Radio Facebook page, and second, the ProServe PR Marketing and Litigation page. You can also listen to any of our episodes on demand, and you can easily find the episode links located on the media releases that we publish for each episode. Those are on the bottom left-hand corner of the page. You can also visit our website, proservepr.com, and use the embedded radio show player on the Law Talk radio page that is right on our website. You can also check out some of our recent links and articles there while you listen. Support for Law Talk Radio comes from Chris McCarthy of Northwestern Mutual. Chris McCarthy provides individuals and business owners with expert guidance and exclusive access to Northwestern Mutual's life and disability insurance policies. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Now, today's show is titled Family Business Litigation with Henry Krasnow. Henry's book, Your Lawyer, an Owner's Manual, provides an entrepreneurial and family business owners with guides to getting more value from their lawyers. Henry has lectured throughout the country on this subject, as well as on how minority shareholders can develop strategies to make their ownership more valuable. Henry is our guest today on Law Talk Radio to talk about family business litigation issues. Henry has over 40 years' experience in crafting solutions to legal problems that are focused on increasing the profitability of entrepreneurial and family businesses. He advises business owners on a broad range of problems, such as family business succession planning and dispute resolution, as well as real estate development, sales and acquisitions of business, intellectual property protection, resolution of business disputes through litigation, arbitration, negotiation, and mediation, and debt restructuring. Henry is a partner of the Chicago law firm of Krasnow, Saunders, Kornblath, Kaplan, and, and Beniati. Beniati. LLP, sorry about that. Website where you can find more information is www.ksc-law.com. Again, that's ksc-law.com. Now, we do uh, welcome our, our show to callers this afternoon. Of course, our shows are, are uh, objective and neutral here. Uh, you can always call in at area code 917-889-9732 and then press option 1 to be placed in our caller queue. And that telephone number again is 917-889-9732. bit of a disclaimer before we get going today, this is a general information and entertainment program. The advice shared on our show does not constitute professional legal advice. Communication with licensed professionals and attorneys on our shows do not constitute and create client relationships. ProServe PR Marketing does not necessarily endorse all the opinions expressed by guests. And finally, all callers out remain confidential and rights to this broadcast are reserved. Um, I'm going to read to you some of the topics that we're going to cover on our show. In our first segment today, we'll talk about how family business owners can manipulate the value of the business during a divorce and what to do about it. We'll also talk about how family business owners can manipulate the income of a divorcing family member and what to do about it. Then in our second segment, we'll talk about if you are going to take stock in a family business as part of a settlement, what extra protections you want. Some examples may be board membership, 
veto over salaries, veto over family hiring, tag-along rights, etc. Then in our third uh, segment, we'll talk about if you get stock in a family business without an exit, how you can get bought out at a fairer price down the road, facing the reality that minority interest may be less valuable. Then finally, in our fourth segment, we'll talk about people who own family businesses and how they can protect the business from a vindictive divorcing spouse. Now, um, as many of you know, April is Family Law Month here at Law Talk Radio, and while most of our shows have been about divorce, uh, separation issues, child custody, best interests of the child, uh, and certain elements there, we also want to talk tonight about what happens when family members own businesses, and this comes up very often, so this is great information, and we're so pleased to have Henry on our show. Henry, how are you doing tonight? I'm, I'm fine, and I'm very pleased to be here. All right, Henry. Well, let's dive right into it. First of all, though, let's t- uh, tell the folks at home a little bit about your practice and uh, your path to get to where you are today. Um, my practice is made up primarily of business problems. I'm not what one might think of as a matrimonial lawyer or a divorce lawyer, but I'm a business lawyer. And to me, that means that I simply try and help people in business solve business problems that have legal aspects. Um, the the problem in my business or my profession is to try and craft solutions that don't simply deal with academic legal issues, but rather merge the the legal issues with the business issues so that the outcome is presumably one that has the most upside of the business and the least risk of the business. Uh, I do a lot of work with family businesses. In fact, most privately held businesses are family businesses. Now, when we have family-held businesses and we have divorce, a whole whole plethora of problems can uh, rear their head. And it's something that uh, I know when I was first learning uh, learning the ropes in, in family law, um, I remember working with uh, one of the people. I was a law clerk, and one of the uh, attorneys I was working for had a business valuation expert come in, and he said, you would not believe how many times people get divorced without doing a proper business evaluation. I mean, that's just barely scratching the surface. So, Henry, uh, let's dive right in here and talk about uh, some of these issues, such as um, manipulating the value of a business and also the income of one of those divorcing family members. It's it's very interesting to think about the value of a family-owned business or the value of a privately held business. In part, it's because each one is unique and it doesn't have a ready market value the way uh, a 32-inch Sony television might have a value where you can go to Target and get one price, Walmart and get one price, and Best Buy and get a third price. Each business has a value that's unique to the buyer because of the buyer's perception of what cost savings they can have and how they can run the business, what new ideas and new energies they might bring to the business, all of which is a very long way of saying that the value is, to some extent, very difficult to discern. And what that means is it's really very very easy to manipulate. Uh, If somebody wants their business to look more attractive, uh, they can change their spending habits. They can change their salaries and make the business look more profitable. If they want to make the business look less attractive, they can increase their salaries. They can increase the amount they spend. They can be more pessimistic with their projections. Um, they can borrow more money or pay off some of the borrowing. There's so many different ways 
that people can change how the business operates and change its value, which is why it becomes so difficult to value a, a privately held business. And now, I guess we should be clear, a privately held business is one where you can't go to the stock exchange and buy the stock. If you want to buy a piece of Microsoft or if you want to buy a piece of General Motors, you call up a stockbroker and they'll tell you what the price is today within a few dollars. But if you want to buy 10% of a business that doesn't have stock traded on the stock exchange, then the problem of valuing it becomes infinitely more complex. Um, that's again, all goes back to the owners of the business have a huge amount of discretion and power to either accidentally or maliciously change the value of the business depending upon what their goal is. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that um, that I'm thinking about is goodwill and contributions to goodwill. Uh, when you talk about things that are tough to discern and put a price tag on, um, you know, let's say we have one spouse who, you know, attends events and um, is kind of a promoter in a sense, but not really doing all the day-to-day work and doesn't have as much skin in the game, but certainly contributes to goodwill. Um, I've, I've seen that come up in divorce situations, and it's really tough to to um, attribute that number. So what are the, some of the resources and tools that you have available to you when you're helping clients with some of these issues and their concerns with manipulation of value and of incomes? The, the truth is that it is much easier to manipulate the business. It is much easier to manipulate the value of the business than it is to uncover that manipulation. Whether that's good or bad is, it seems to me, decided by what side you are on. If this is a matter of picking sides, but um, but the tools that are available, I guess we should start by giving people names. The the there's there's the spouse who is the owner, and then there's the divorcing spouse who is not the owner. The tools available to the spouse who is the owner are, are many. The tools that are available to the divorcing spouse who is not the owner are are much more limited. The first thing I think that someone must do is to find advisors who are more than a little sophisticated in understanding this area. Many people think that a business, a privately held business, has an easily discernible value. The reality is that it doesn't. Many people think that you can determine the value of a privately held business simply by hiring a competent appraiser. And and I think that regardless of the competence of the appraiser, I think they'll all tell you that they can only make a guess based on information that's provided by the business. And to the extent the business is not providing accurate information, the appraiser has trouble figuring out a value that's credible. So if we go back to what does a divorcing spouse who's not the owner do, I think the first step is that they hire an advisor. It it may be that their matrimonial lawyer is competent at that. There are many who are. There are many who are not. But 
the first step is to have an advisor who you trust who can help you work your way through this maze. It's really very, I mean, you don't want to be playing checkers when everyone else is playing chess. And if your divorce attorney, your matrimonial attorney isn't good at that, then it seems to me you need to find a business lawyer or a business advisor or an accountant or an appraiser who who really has those skills and can help help you uncover the various ways to counterpunch or to reexamine the valuation put on the business by the owner. In terms of what that advisor would do, I think the first step is to try and understand where the business I'm sorry, let me try and rephrase that. The first thing you need to understand is that the appraise, the value that you're going to be given, the numbers that you're going to be given, the projections, the income statements, the financial statements, all of those are going to be, you should assume, based on pessimistic financial assumptions so as to make the business look less valuable than it might otherwise be. If you start from that assumption, you need to ask the question of where might I find more optimistic projections, more optimistic numbers, more information that is realistic as opposed to pessimistic. Knowing the answer to that is not easy, and there is no one answer to that. But I think the most likely place is if this business has an active relationship with a bank, mm-hmm. the chances are overwhelming that the bank has these optimistic numbers. Right. No one wants to tell their banker that they're struggling. <laughs> they might tell their estate planning lawyer that they're struggling because they want <laughs> the numbers to look bad for estate planning purposes, but the banker is most likely going to know the optimistic view of that. And yeah, with a good line of credit application. Exactly. That's. I mean, if if you to, if you ask where am I most likely to get lucky in this endeavor, it seems to me that getting lucky means that the company involved has a very active line of credit, a very active relationship with its bank, and has given the banker projections which are dramatically different than they've given the divorce lawyer. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, this is something when you mention also all these professionals, advisors, I'd like to point out to our audience as well. Um, when you are going through a divorce situation, um, there are two different schools of thought and approaches out there. We have, of course, our traditional litigation approach, and then there's also uh, collaborative law mediation and other things where um, there are more professionals involved oftentimes and uh, people are, are well-trained in spotting, for example, a, a passive-aggressive spouse who may be the owner uh, could you know, really thwart the efforts of the, the people and the professionals involved in the divorce by, again, offering these, um, as, as Henry has mentioned, them pessimistic financial projections. So, again, always good to consult as many professionals, get lots of opinions. I think family law and business litigation um, is, you know, you should get as many opinions as if you were being diagnosed with uh, an ailment or disease and we're shopping around for, you know, ideas there. So, again, very good points from Henry. We're going to pause for our uh, first commercial break quick, and then we'll be back with uh, segment two where we'll talk a little bit about taking stock in a family business. All right, I want to let you know about an upcoming event this summer. Mark your calendars, June 9th 
through, I'm sorry, June 7th through June 9th, uh, and the group is NALI, the National Association of Legal Investigators. They'll be holding their annual summit at the Hotel Avenue Crown Plaza here in Chicago, June 7th through June 9th. Again, it's National Association of Legal Investigators, and they're celebrating NALI's 45th anniversaries. Uh, presenters at this event include Cynthia Hetherington, myself, Nick Augustine, Andrea Lyon, Todd Throne, Jed Stone, and representatives from Dynamic Safety LLC and Reed and Associates. Attorneys are encouraged to attend this event, and as always, the presenters for this NALI conference are the best of the best in their fields, and you will learn new information you can take home and put to use immediately. The presentations are balanced with criminal, civil, and general litigation issues to best educate all attending NALI members and the attorneys who are learning more about working with NALI certified investigators. Public defender colleagues, paralegals, and attorneys are all, again, encouraged to attend this event. And if you'd like more information, please direct your inquiries to the Office for NALI, which is, again, the National Association of Legal Investigators, at area code 517-372-1500. The telephone number, again, is 517-372-1500. Okay, now back to uh, segment two of our show with Henry Krasnow, and we're talking about family business, family litigation and business issues. Um, in our second segment, we'd like to talk a little bit about taking stock in family businesses. Again, this is, might be something that happens as a part of a settlement. Uh, what extra protections do you want to take? What are some options you should seek and exercise? So, Henry, let's go. Nick, Tell us can, a little we, bit about this. can we go backwards a little bit in time? We can. Before you broke for the for the commercial you had mentioned uh, about you know there being alternatives to litigation, and I think right. in this area that is a very very good idea, and it's something that I think someone who is becoming divorced from a family business owner should seriously consider. It doesn't mean that they have to compromise, but understanding and getting this information in a less hostile and less confrontational setting, such as the setting that's created through a collaborative process or the setting that's created by um, mediation, is often a better way to understand the information and to get to the bottom of it than by doing it in sort of the classic ways that you might see lawyers do it on television. Right. It's, that isn't to denigrate those lawyers in any way. It's really to suggest that there are situations where that approach is the best approach. And dismissing those situations out of hand because you're angry or because you feel that you're going to be taken advantage of is, I think, short-sighted. Right, right. And there's almost always going to be a disproportionate uh, array of power and knowledge as, as far as it goes to the business, the books, and everything else. And again, you may have obstructionist owner spouses and non-owner spouses who just know that money goes into the bank and they don't really know how or where. Yeah, and uh, yeah, uh, yes. And um, the 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 other consideration is to not be penny wise and pound foolish, or maybe that's the wrong cliche. But there's a point at which ar arguing about it is counterproductive. Uh, there is a, a great deal more power in the hands of the business owner. They do have a lot more ability to manipulate the numbers, and there are times when there is almost nothing that can be done about that. Right. Uh, and that realizing, you know, accepting that reality and, and realizing that there isn't anything that you can economically do 
um, is the wisest decision and, and just getting on with your life. On the other hand, there are times when the amount of money involved is, uh, you know, millions of dollars and the investment into trying and increase your, your settlement by a million dollars is well worth the, worth the effort. Uh, it, it requires a situation where uh, the judgments are made based on rational assessments, not based on anger or other emotions. And, and you need advisors who will offer you objective, rational advice as opposed to advisors who will simply pander to your sense of being taken advantage of or your anger in order to accomplish some other goal. Mm-hmm. Very, very true. And uh, oftentimes, well, I can remember a few situations where uh, the settlement, the divorce, kept was um, postponed and postponed because it was reevaluate this, reevaluate, and we spent so much money in reevaluating things that by the the, the the magical number the person wanted to arrive at was going to be depleted by the amount of attorney's fees. So it was just a losing. I, I like don't cut your nose to spite your face. That's a, a good cliche. That is a better cliche than the one I came up with. <laughs> well, let's talk about let's shift gears and talk about stock. Well, the the. Although I have never met a family business owner who wants a ex-spouse or an ex-daughter-in-law or an ex-son-in-law to be an owner, I've always thought that the most counterintuitive and maybe the cleverest thing to do in a bitter divorce is to let them be an owner. In other words, there's a certain careful what you wish for, you might get it aspect, mm-hmm. like a dog sort of chasing a car. It doesn't quite know what it will do if it catches it. <laughs> Often, you know, spouses will make a big deal, and, and they might get trapped into the other person saying, well, okay, you want half of my 10% interest, I'll make you a 5% shareholder in the family business. That is truly a mixed blessing. It's, it may not be a blessing at all, and it really may be closer to the dog chasing the car. Owning 5% of a privately held business does not mean that you will get 5% of the value. It does not mean you'll get 5% of the sales. It does not mean you'll get anything. It means that you have 5% of the votes, and that means you can be outvoted on everything. Mm. So the owners can raise their salaries without your permission. The owners can... Uh, you know, have lavish uh, board of directors meetings without your permission. Uh, there are uh, just a number of ways that the owners can, if you will, abuse the minority shareholders. That's the danger of getting the stock. The protections that you can talk about, if that is really an option, are really protections which have to do with how the business is run, and it has to do with a relatively sophisticated understanding of how owners in privately held businesses profit from the businesses. For instance, if you are a minority owner, you would be very well served to have something that limits the salary of the majority owners. You would want to make sure that if the majority owners hire their children or other family members, that they don't end up paying salaries which are excessive, that they don't pay a salary to their college-age son, which is really the college tuition in disguise. You would want to make sure that expense reimbursements are done appropriately and not lavishly. You would want to make sure that board of directors meetings uh, all occur, that you can attend, and in fact you may want a veto power over certain things. 
each one of, you know, there is, as in many of these other things, there's no formula, there's no one-size-fits-all. It's going to be a negotiation that's going to involve compromises, and it really can only be done by somebody or someone who has an advisor who's rather sophisticated about how businesses like this operate and how they keep their records. Now, when we talk about stock what are some of the different types of stock that are commonly uh, shared? Um, could you have, give us some examples for people who might be wondering? Um, there are essentially three kinds of stock. There's voting, common voting stock or voting stock that's common stock, voting non-voting stock that's common stock, and then there's what's referred to as preferred stock. Let's, let me start explaining those by first talking about preferred stock. And, and let me uh, preface all this with there are people who have written very lengthy books about what I'm going to try and summarize in the next three minutes. So I, I don't, you know, this is almost like saying I'm a trained professional, don't try this at home alone. This is really not a full discussion of these. But in general, preferred stockholders get a distribution, usually it's a set amount, like 10% or 5%, and their distribution is preferred over the distribution of the common shareholders. Sometimes their distribution can be cumulative, so that if I don't get my preferred 10% distribution this year, it carries over into next year. So from the point of view of a minority shareholder, having a preferred stock where you have a cumulative required distribution each year, guaranteed, comes close to guaranteeing you, nothing is guaranteed, but it comes close to guaranteeing you that you'll have a regular income and that you'll be paid regular dividends. With common stock, there's no guarantee ever that there are regular dividends. Then if you don't get preferred stock, then there's common stock. There's common stock, which is comes with a vote, and there's common stock which doesn't come with a vote. If you own 5% of the stock, it may not matter whether you have a vote or not. You're, you know, you can be outvoted by the, by the family, by your former in-laws, you know, any day of the week. But, you know, having a vote is almost always better than not having a vote. But the thing to remember that most people don't realize is that, as I said before, you can own 5% of the company and yet never see a penny of cash. You can own 5% of the company and all of the company's profits are paid out to the owners in the form of salaries, which means that the company itself would be left with no money for dividends. Privately held companies that pay dividends are few and far between. It doesn't mean they don't exist, but as a stockholder, you need to understand that you know you cannot depend on getting dividends. That is something that is going to be totally in the discretion of the board of directors, and the board of directors are going to be the people elected by the majority. So you could really, yeah, I mean, not, these are such good questions to ask. You could, I could see how easily someone could be bamboozled, so to speak, by believing that they're getting a really great deal on this, um, you know, on a stock, you know, stock and ownership in the company, but it being, you know, the different formats 
can be a you know very different experience than when someone's expectations don't turn out to be what they thought um, and in valuing these things. And again, uh, Henry, as you stated earlier, going through and identifying some of the different things and different asks you could uh, seek, such as a board membership veto over salaries, um, other rights, again, are, are sort of um, intangibles that are cer certain, certainly tough to, to value sometimes. And again, this is where our experts and advisors come in. I think that's right. I'm not really suggesting that the advisor needs to be a lawyer. In fact, there are uh, most lawyers don't truly understand the intricacies of how businesses work in that regard. And the best advisors, you know, although there are lawyers who I think are incredibly skilled at this, the best advisors may be accountants or, you know, business consultants of some sort. But having a, having an advisor who understands business and who will give you objective information, objective, realistic information is, I think, invaluable. Being driven by feelings and being driven by anger in a situation like this is incredibly dangerous because it, dangerous is probably overstating it, but it's incredibly likely to lead to a poor result. Well, very, you know, these are so many different options with these uh, family businesses. And again, these things come up in litigation and transactionally. Um, so do you work in both of those areas with your clients? Yes. I mean, I work in, you know, I've worked in terms of buying, selling, and dealing with the problems of, you know, the problems of minority. The problems of being a minority owner of a family business are not limited to uh, former in-laws. Uh, that, you know, it is not uncommon for cousins to own a business and one of the cousins to want their money and the other cousins to not want to buy their stock or to brothers who get in a fight. Um you know the the stories of what goes on in family businesses are endless and sometimes tragic and sometimes amusing but um but the you know the short version is simply that those who control the business really do have a huge amount of discretion and understanding how abuse is done and fully understanding the extent to which abuse can occur and how the abuse is done is is critical in terms of evaluating any situation. Very much so. So again, nothing. This is not information to be taken lightly. Um, the right amount of professionals and advisors, and having, having someone, uh, especially an outside person, come in and take a look, see if things pass the you know pass the sniff test, so to speak. Because uh, quite often, when some of the you know, I'm not saying that this is you know, something that happens often, but sometimes there are so many different issues going on within a divorce and within business valuation that it's easy to get stuck on one issue and, you know, something else can get, you know, snuck under the table. So, again, always good to have multiple sets of eyes. We're going to pause for our next uh, commercial announcement. It's actually a special offer we have to share with you. And then we'll be back with our third segment. In our third segment, we'll talk a little bit more about if you get still about stock, but if you have stock in a family business without an exit plan, um, getting your stock repurchased and getting bought out at a good price. So we'll be back in a, in a few moments. The special offer I want to share with you tonight is a combination offer from the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin and the Chicago Lawyer Magazine, who are now offering a super low price. And you can visit lawbulletin.com 
forward slash combo for more information on this offer. And the offer is, for a limited time, Law Bulletin Publishing is offering a special one-year subscription rate of $159, which is 43% off the normal subscription rate. Plus, if you act now, you'll receive a free one-year subscription to the Chicago Lawyer Magazine, which in itself is a $60 value. So subscribe to the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin by April 30th, 2012, and you'll also receive the Chicago Lawyer for 2012 and save $180. Now, in addition to daily coverage from the Daily Center, Federal Courthouses, Illinois Supreme Court, and the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin, uh, you'll find the following included benefits. Uh, number one, profiles of corporate counsel, lobbyists, legislators, and judges. Secondly, case summaries and analysis, including the trial notebook. Third, sports law stories. Fourth, transactional law stories from non-litigators, and fifth, daily insights and trends, including comings and goings within the legal community. Sixth, you'll also receive comprehensive collar county court call coverage with the recent additions of Will and Kane counties, and seventh, more and more stories and photos from the collar counties. Now, you again can visit lawbulletin.com forward slash combo to take advantage of this offer that ends April 30th. 2012. And now back to our program with Henry Krasnow. Henry, let's talk a little bit more about family stock and uh, exit strategies. Um, the, rea- the reality and the realization that someone who owns stock in a privately held business needs to start from is that there is no ready market to buy, to sell this stock. You can own 5%, 10%, 15%, or even more of the stock of a very successful family business, a business that, you know, where 65% is owned by your former, either by your present or your former relative, and they can be driving lavish cars and taking lavish vacations and living in lavish houses, and yet there is no one who will want to buy your shares. No one really wants to be an investor in a business that is privately held and that they have no power or control over. The stock may be very, very valuable if the majority ever decides to sell, but almost valueless if the majority doesn't decide to sell. That's a reality that some people have a lot of trouble coming to grips with, but it is a reality. No one may want to buy your stock except for the current stockholders. And the reason that, no, as I said before, the reason no one wants to buy your stock is because they have the owner of your stock, like you, has no way to get any cash from the business, and they have no way to influence or veto any decisions. So the people who can veto and influence the decisions are the 65% shareholders, and from their point of view, they would say to themselves, why should I buy their stock unless I can get it at a deep discount? I already control the business. I already can take out what I want to take out in terms of salary and bonus. I'm already driving a company car that costs $60,000 to purchase and that they replace every year. What do I need this extra stock for? I would use my money to diversify my portfolio by buying Microsoft or 
General Motors or General Electric or some other stock in the stock market where I can be sure my wealth is preserved. That's the problem. Nick, and I, I want to sort of stop and ask, have I explained the problem? I mean, the solution won't make any sense without understanding the problem. Have I explained the problem clearly? Well, the, yeah, the problem, the problem is clear that it's tough to value and other people might not want it. And one of the things, as you were explaining that, thought that I had is what if someone is trying to thwart the uh, ex-spouse and is threatening to sell their shares to someone some complete random person just to, uh, you know, be a bee in the bonnet, you know? I don't know. You mean, I, I don't think that's as big a problem as many people fear. The majority owners are not going to sell control. I mean, they're not going to sell so much stock that they don't have, you know, at all times 50, 60, 70%. The person who owns 30%, they're going to have trouble finding anyone who would buy their stock because when you only own 30% or 20% or 10%, there's nothing you can do with it except Mm -hmm. find someone who will buy it at a very deep discount. Hmm. That's the problem. The problem is, you know, the, the problem to the minority shareholder is that there's really nobody sophisticated who wants your stock. Uh, other than the majority. And the majority isn't going to buy your stock unless they can get it at a deep discount. All right, so this makes sense. So now we're in a pickle if we are left with this stock and we want to do something. So what's the solution? The solution is something that that few have, few lawyers actually have written about because you you do not have the legal right to make anyone buy your stock. You cannot force someone to buy your stock. They will offer you a deeply discounted price. So the problem then becomes, how do I persuade an unwilling buyer to be a willing buyer? What tools do I have to make an unwilling, reluctant buyer be more enthusiastic and raise their price for the stock? And unfortunately, the tools do involve finding a lawyer who will adopt the strategy of killing the goose that lays the golden egg. In other words, you know, you have, if you will, a piece of a goose that's laying the golden egg. The problem is that you're not getting any of the golden eggs. The golden eggs are going to someone else. And what you need to do is to persuade them in one form or another that you're going to try and kill the goose. And although that's a stark illusion, that's literally what is going on. The tools someone has as a minority shareholder really have to do with the tendency of almost everybody who owns a privately held business to to take questionable positions on income tax. There are probably skeletons hidden in the closet. There are uh, deductions that are taken that may not be appropriate if audited. There are salaries that are paid that may be excessive. There may be a mother on the payroll who's not really coming to work and she's just getting a salary as a way of dealing with an estate planning problem. Knowing where those skeletons might be buried or what closet those skeletons might be in 
is is one tool and then exploiting that knowledge is how you can make your stock more valuable it may be that you can persuade a judge that there are statutes in illinois and in almost every other state that allow for protection of a minority allow for remedies to a minority shareholder if they can persuade the judge that the company is not really being managed fairly there are also remedies that sometimes relate to disqualifying the current management from managing and it's it's in a similar way it's a strategy that's similar to what might be referred to as horseshoes you don't need to win you only need to come close mm-hmm. you simply need to create the risk to the majority that they might actually lose you don't have to make them lose you just have to persuade them that there's a substantial risk of losing <laughs> At which point they will pay you so they don't have to take the risk. You, the minority shareholder, are not betting the ranch. You're just betting your attorney's fees. The majority is betting the ranch because if they lose, they lose everything. If you lose, you only lose the attorney's fees that you put into it because you didn't have anything that was very valuable in the first place. Well, talk about hedging your bets. I think that's probably a classic <laughs> example. But as I said before, it it really requires that you have an advisor who you trust and you have an advisor who's had experience in this and you have an advisor who understands the dynamics. It is a very classic situation where you want to be playing chess when the others are playing checkers, if that's the right illusion. You don't want to be playing checkers when they're playing chess. Yeah. Well, it stands to reason that leveraging knowledge about taxes, different pain points, um, you know, is a what what a good what a good idea. I'm I'm glad there are professionals out there like you that think of these things because it wouldn't occur to uh, to many of us. Um, but, uh, you know, it's very true. Uh, you don't need, I always say the pen is mightier than the sword. And I give a, an example where, um, there was, someone was making a complaint about, um, a local, um, public department and nothing happened. And it was, the threats kind of fell on deaf ears till the person said, well, I'm going to call my friend over at the sun times. Well, guess what? All of a sudden, uh, people sprung into action. So, uh, it's, it's really, it really seems to be finding those different pain points, right, Henry? No, that's exactly right. And and I, I'm I'm only slightly embarrassed to say I think I'm the only lawyer who's actually written about this subject. And there's a chapter in my book about it, and there's also a chapter in a book that's been put out by Family Business Magazine uh-huh. that I wrote uh, about this subject. Well, the subject is, you know, essentially when talking fails, when talking to people doesn't work anymore what can you do to increase your leverage and thus increase the price right um and you know and there is literature i'm proud to say it's stuff i've written but there is literature on the subject and it really does arise from if you will hard-earned experience i've been in this situation before i'm not i'm certainly not the only lawyer who's been in this situation before but many of us have been in this situation before and seen how this drama plays out when it ends up in litigation. It is unfortunate that that's what happens. Sometimes that can be avoided by people simply understanding the leverage each side has. 
<coughs> but it, it is a matter of simply understanding that you have power, understanding that you're willing to exercise the power, and then selling that power for a price. Yeah. It, it, you know, it's. Um, I'm glad that you are writing about these things because it's, um, you know, again, I go back to the, um, you know, the fork in the road of where you, you know, do you start with litigation mode and, you know, prepare for war and put on the boxing gloves, or do you go the alternative dispute resolution mode? And again, um, you know, these are tough decisions to make, and, um, <laughs> you know, uh, some of these leveraging opportunities may or may not come up with, if you're in a collaborative situation, um, this might not be, well, you know, may, you know, it, never, it could come up in mediation, I suppose. Um, but I don't know. I think, again, I will say thank you for writing about these topics because I think everyone knows the writing on the wall sometimes, and um, it, it's, it's important to call a spade a spade sometimes, um, and help people. I mean, I mean, we look at leverage buyouts. I mean, people would, some people would argue that uh, a leverage buyout is a distasteful proposition, but um, I don't necessarily agree. I no, I don't either, and I, I don't mean to be too glib and say some of my best friends are mediators, but some of my best friends are mediators, and it is not an either-or proposition. Mm. <clears throat> you can start with a mediated process, and then if it doesn't work turn into litigation or threaten litigation. I've seen many, every lawsuit I have been involved in that the parties agreed to go to mediation ended up getting resolved. Mediation is an incredibly effective way, I think, of resolving litigated matters. Yes. But usually it doesn't occur until everyone understands the power and the risks involved in continuing with the litigation. It's you know, it's almost as if two nuclear powers are facing off against each other and they yep. realize that the best resolution is not dropping the bomb, but <laughs> rather talking about right? how to keep the bombs, you know, in the silos. Well, it's, um, you know, for anyone who's ever dealt with what is in family law called a fishing expedition with subpoenas to every bank and this and that with, the, you know, people suggesting money's hidden here, money's hidden here, and now we start hiring witnesses and people are getting bills for experts. I <laughs> mean, people might uh, get to the mediation table really quick when they start, um, you know, I've I've worked on, on high net worth divorce cases before and it is, the bills can be astronomical and people should realize that. So anyways, we're going to take, go ahead. No, I go ahead, and then we can talk about this after your break. Okay, yeah, we're going to stop for a quick first. Uh, this is actually a host message from us at ProServe PR Marketing, and then when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about these issues, and including uh, protecting family businesses from vindictive divorcing spouses, as well as everything within the world of litigation and mediation and all the other options we have out there. So, um, But the host message I want to share with you today is a little note about our consulting program here at ProServe PR Marketing. From solo practitioners to large law firm managers, Managers, we receive invitations to come over and present lunch and learn workshops for the benefit of transactional and litigation attorneys as well who want to know more about how to use digital media, public relations, and marketing opportunities to leverage their achievements and contributions to further their career and engage new clients and referrals. Now, something I'd like to add to that, um, I just came up in discussion uh, and, in fact, did earlier today. Um, there are all sorts of people who are climbing the ladder within larger law firms, and not everyone knows what all the other lawyers are doing. You may have someone who's in one practice area who doesn't know 
who's in the other practice areas or groups, and they might be sending referrals out the door somewhere else. Or, uh, you know, if you want to excel and uh, be our partner track, there are different things you can do, again, within your own firm. So PR and marketing, I always say, is not only for the sole practitioners out there. It's not only for the big firms who have large advertising budgets. It's for everyone who's an attorney and growing and building their career. So if you want to learn more about some of these options and uh, set up an opportunity to have someone come out and give a talk, um, we also let you know that we have um, our friends at the ARDC also, our partners with us, and uh, we roll out some of their material on some of the social media risks and how to not get dinged uh, as well. Um, you can call for more information at 312-505-2604. That telephone number again, 312-505-2604. You can also go to our website, ProServePR.com, and uh, find more information there. Now, before we get back to uh, round out our final segment, uh, we want to remind our listeners out there to share. Please share our broadcast links in your social networks. Again, those are the same links you can click to listen to the show, and many people find our shows on their friends' Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn pages, and we want to thank everyone for your support in sharing our programming. Now, back to our talk with Henry Krasnow about family business litigation and values and um, all of our issues we're talking about today. Um, Henry, let's continue on. You were saying earlier... One of the major advantages of being a privately held business, and one of the reasons many very successful businesses do not have their stock sold publicly on the stock market, is because they jealously want to guard their information. Their financial information is a well-guarded secret. And the reality of there being a bitter divorce where that information could be made public is incredibly and appropriately distasteful. That is part of the leverage that a minority shareholder has in order to enhance the reasons why someone would want to buy their stock. And and I really said that to sort of underline what you had said before the break about how the reality of both the cost and disruption of litigation sometimes doesn't set in until what lawyers refer to as the discovery process starts, the process where depositions are taken, where thousands of pages of documents have to be produced, where financial records get disclosed, where the company's margins uh, and expenses and expense accounts reimbursements are all run the risk of being made public. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, the expense with that and also complying with court orders, many trips to court, it bills add up real quick, folks. The, the other is that when everyone is on the same side of the table, with a wink and a nod, there are ways to take aggressive positions with regard to income tax issues, which could be very substantial. When people are no longer on the same side of the table, those who are bitter – I think may actually be paid a bounty by the IRS to suggest that the company has been cheating on its income tax. Uh, I know of a situation that I was recently involved in. It didn't involve a family member, but it involved, you know, two two men in their 50s who had been, you know, the best of friends. I mean, they were the closest of buddies, and one of them they had a falling out and. In the course of it, the IRS showed up at the company's doorstep, and the company now is teetering on the edge of bankruptcy with a payment plan to the IRS. 
there are secrets. Some companies have bigger secrets than others, but there are secrets which no one who's in control of the company wants to be made secret. And sometimes there are criminal penalties that go along with those secrets. There are lots of reasons why you would want to buy out. There are lots of reasons why, in some situations, buying out unhappy minority shareholders is the smartest thing you can ever do. Mm. You know, one of the something that just occurred to me: if you have, let's say, you have a family-held business, and you think someone's marriage is on the rocks, um, and you might be worried that they may be savvy and come back with some of these um, tools in their uh, war chest, so to speak, um, it seems that you might want to, you know, do some sort of auditing of income in the books and different things and get you know and have something at least prepared as a roadmap um you know what are you what are your thoughts on proactive audits unfortunately i think that it's a very good idea Let, let's start i suppose with the premise that not cheating on income tax is the best practice right unfortunately or fortunately many people may acknowledge that but do it anyhow there is, and many people lose sight. I want to tell an anecdote. I used to have a partner, and every once in a while, our firm would get a fee paid in cash, and he was meticulous about making sure that we always reported the cash as income and paid a tax on it, mm-hmm. because he perceived correctly that if our bookkeeper knew that we were distributing cash without paying a tax on it that she would have become our partner and that there was sort of no extent to which her greed might end up becoming our liability. Mm, right. The same is true in a in any other business that you know if you're selling your scrap out the back door for cash and you're not paying a tax on it your bookkeeper knows even if your bookkeeper has been loyal for the last 30 years. The family members probably know. And and there are many businesses that can't resist the opportunity of doing it. So I guess the best advice is to don't do it. That's the first thing. If you are doing it, it's very hard to stop doing it. But the the one difficult pill to swallow, I mean, the, obviously the best pill to swallow is to don't engage in any of these practices. But if you are engaging in these practices, the next best remedy is to have an agreement in place that allows you to buy back the stock of usually your children or of each other. In other words, if if it's if the company is owned by cousins or by brothers and sisters or by parents and children, usually a divorce the the ability of a divorcing spouse to cause trouble is dramatically reduced if the majority owners have the option of buying back the stock at a price that's set before the divorce is initiated. The problem with that is that it has an adverse effect on the majority owner's estate planning goals. In other words, the the option to buy back the stock is an asset that one could pay an estate tax on if they die. And that's the tension. The tension is that there are ways to insure yourself against these actions. Those ways all have a cost. And whether or not one 
is prepared to pay that cost is really the tension that most everybody confronts, and not everyone resolves it in the right way. Mm-hmm. Um, and what, a point that I'd like to also bring up and highlight, in, in addition to uh, fearing, uh, in, you know, prying eyes uh, by a, a family, a family-owned business and a shareholder. Um, likewise, I just wanted to make this note that um, if you've got outside investors as well, or if you have private equity firms that have uh, invested money, they also uh, may have rights to to your books and can also cause all sorts of uh, difficulties as well. And maybe you have a vindictive spouse. Um, who goes to one of those people and will tip off, tip it off to them to make it look like it's not coming from the vindictive spouse; it's coming from the the investor. So, I mean, there's just a myriad of difference. You know, you know, as you continue to weave the web, it gets very intricate, and um, your problems could be many. Oh, that's absolutely true. When you have, I mean, once you have, once the family has outsiders, once you're dealing with, you know what sometimes is referred to OPM, other people's money. Mm-hmm. The risks are even greater, and generally the price that you pay to get an investor to invest in your business is the protection, is that they will want to have the kind of information that prevents you from doing all the things that we were talking about. Um, which is why many people don't ever get other people's money, is because the price of other people's money is that there is more transparency and that what might be referred to as common but questionable practices are not engaged in. Mm-hmm. All sorts of forms of golden handcuffs, as I like to say. Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. All the trappings. <laughs> the trappings. Yeah. All the, and of all the trappings and all the tell us a little bit we've got about a, a minute left if you could tell us a little bit about a little bit more about your book and also how people can get a hold of you well my book was written when i first i, I had a family member who had an illness and i realized that the best way i thought what to get good medical care was to understand how doctors think and to understand how doctors do their job and to understand how you communicate with doctors. And I then applied that to what lawyers did because I had by that time been practicing law for quite a period of time, and I I was constantly frustrated and disappointed by how so many people misunderstood what lawyers did and as the result ended up paying far too much money for far too little value. Oh, yeah. I, I wrote the book really to empower small bit, smaller business owners. This is not Bill Gates or Warren Buffett, but to empower those people who owned privately held businesses to understand what lawyers did, to understand how lawyers thought, and to understand how they could get value from lawyers. I've been a lawyer for a long time. I know all the lawyer jokes, and I'm certainly not suggesting that all lawyers are equal or that all lawyers are perfect or that all lawyers are honest. Mm-hmm. But I do think that if you better understand what lawyers do and how they do it, the likelihood of your being taken advantage of a lawyer is dramatically reduced. And the abil- your ability to get valuable advice and to hear the valuable advice as opposed to getting valuable advice and ignoring it is also dramatically increased. Um, 
you know, I mean, understanding the value of compromise, understanding the the uh, disadvantages of being driven by anger, and understanding how to not be fooled by lawyers who are essentially selling theater. There are lawyers who perceive that their clients want them to be angry, so they pretend to be angry. Right. And the client is impressed, and the anger is false. Theater. That, it seems to me, is not getting value. That's like getting theater. Right. You know, you, you know, if you want a cheerleader, you can go to a basketball game. <laughs> a lawyer is not a cheerleader. A lawyer is an advisor. One of the things in my book is, is the list that I refer to as the 12 best ways to get more from your lawyer for less. And quite honestly, I, I, it's a little bit immodest to say it, but I think the book is worth buying just to get that list. Yeah, well, it, you know, it's, I'm, I'm so glad that you wrote a book like that because it seems like you and I are on some similar paths where my goal is to teach lawyers how to deal and work with uh, marketing and media and publicity. Um, you know, and I, I continue saying to people that in our 24-hour news cycle, no comment is sometimes the worst comment you can make. But again, lawyers have been, um, I suppose, feeling swindled by all. Look at how many internet marketer people are there are out there, and I don't know that they all have skills, knowledge. Abilities. It's a very interesting uh, practice and often misunderstood, especially publicity and marketing. So people go round and round and round about what the two things mean. So um, it's it's uh, so I very much appreciate the book that you're writing on how people can learn to work with and, and understand lawyers better. It's such a valuable thing. Henry, give us some uh, quick uh, opportunities and ways that people can get a hold of you for more information about your book and your practice. Well, I suppose that the best way, the book can be found on Amazon.com. Uh, I think if you Google my name, Henry Krasno, K-R-A-S-N-O-W, you will easily find it, uh, or you will easily find me. I'm in Chicago. Uh, our phone number is 312-755-5700. And our practice involves exactly the things that I was talking about before. We have created, <coughs> excuse me, a law firm which we think is a very sophisticated, full-service law firm for an entrepreneurial company, for a company that's privately held, or for any individual who is involved in business. Uh, we do estate planning. We do every form of dispute resolution. We don't do matrimonial law. We don't do criminal law. We don't do personal injury work. But anything that involves the process of making money and keeping money is the scope of what our practice is involved in. And I think, you know, in today's age, the easiest way to do it is just to Google my name, and I, my children do that every once in a while, and apparently I'm very easy to find. <laughs> well, that's great. All right, well, Henry, thank you again for your time and for being our guest this afternoon. Well, thank you, Nick. All right. I'd also like to thank all of our listeners out there for tuning into this episode of Law Talk Radio, brought to you by ProServe PR Marketing and with support from Chris McCarthy of Northwestern Mutual. Chris McCarthy provides individuals and business owners with expert guidance and exclusive access to Northwestern Mutual's life, insurance, and disability policies. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company is located in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Law Talk Radio episodes are programmed to entertain and bring our legal industry professionals, consumers, and guests the Tips and tools and news that they can use to be better formed practitioners and consumers. This is Nick Augustine again for Law Talk Radio, and as always, I thank you for your time. <laughs>